Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 138. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, happy to be joined by Rebecca Hughes, also known as Beans of Nebula. That right? <laughs> yes, that's unfortunately, that's correct. What a nickname. I got to hear the story of this. Yeah, it's actually just a handle that I've had since you could make handles for... AOL or instant messaging. <laughs> and I had it when I created my Instagram and I just never changed it. And I did actually try to change it to something jujitsu related a couple of years ago and people screamed at me. So I just, <laughs> just kept it at beans. It's actually a nickname my dad gave me when I was a kid. So that's, that's great. That's all in well. Well, you know, it's refreshing to hear a jujitsu person with a nickname that isn't all aggro, you mm -hmm. know, it, rather than <laughs> the monster or the axe murderer. You know, it's nice to have someone who's just beans. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I'm, my attitude is a little bit make up, makes up for the lack of aggro in my name. So, <laughs> well, now that we've told everyone who you are, for those who aren't familiar with your work, maybe do a quick introduction just so that everyone knows what you're up to. Oh uh, yeah. So, I mean, I've been doing jujitsu now since January of 2015. So going on six years, I train, I'm, I'm Canadian and I travel to America for about six months a year or more if I can. And I've done that since white belt. So I'm just, I'm not like your world champion. I've gone to six world championships, but I've only ever gotten on the podium at white belt. So I feel like I am kind of like a rogue jujitsu player in a sense where I do have a career doing jujitsu, but I didn't get to my career through winning multiple world titles. So I think it's a, a little bit an offshoot of how you can make jujitsu work for you. But that has always been my goal is to just teach jujitsu and learn jujitsu and be around jujitsu. And, you know, competition has is something that I am inside of, but it's not my entire world. Thank the Lord. Do you do jujitsu full time? Yes. I've been doing jujitsu full time awesome. since I started. On, like that's the crazy part like I was one of the white belts that was like okay I'm gonna become a black belt world champion like that was like my inner most secret thought that I didn't want to tell anybody and I know other people out there are secretly saying that to themselves as well wow since white belt making a full-time career out of this yeah I mean I and by full-time career I just kind of like I didn't have I wasn't married I didn't have kids so I was just able to kind of work at whatever job I was working at and make that go around my training schedule. And then I would quit if they told me that I couldn't go to the States for multiple weeks or months at a time and just get a job when I came back to Canada. So I've been prioritizing jiu-jitsu for, for six years. 
Wow. That's, that's something else. And I love your story here. I mean, something that I'm really passionate about is jujitsu for normal people. And the mm-hmm. track for the jujitsu athlete is that you make a gym, you sell instructionals. However, we generally assume that you have to be like a 30 time world champion in order to go down that route. And that's one of the things that's kind of interesting about jujitsu is I think people come into this hobby with the impression that to make a go out of this as a job, you have to be the absolute best competitor in the world. But Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's actually true, right? I think that it's important to challenge this path that we suggest people go on where, okay, you got to go out and you got a podium. And then from there, if you do really good, maybe one day you can open a gym or sell some instructionals. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot more space in the martial art for people who aren't pro competitors or who don't have those kinds of ambitions. I think that there's room to make a go out of this if you're a hobbyist or if you're just someone who's more interested in jujitsu as a lifestyle and not as a competition. So I'd love to talk to you about that because this is a situation I also find myself in. I mean, I'm a jujitsu hobbyist and this podcast has grown to the point now where it's a, it's an ongoing financial concern, right? It monetizes. It's Mm -hmm. quickly becoming one of the, the most important financial things going in my life. So that's interesting because I'm not someone who has opened a gym. I'm not someone who has you know, won a whole bunch of world championships. I've actually never competed. For me, this is a a fun thing that I do. And we get a lot of questions from people asking, you know, when is the time to make your move to make jujitsu your full-time career? And you're someone who's done that. So I'd love to hear your story and what kind of suggestions you'd have for people who want to go down a similar path. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, such an important door to open because, I mean, in 2015, there was a lot less information, even just like this. There was, you know, five years, six years less amount of podcasts going on talking about how to do jujitsu, how to practice, what's the difference between a competitor and a hobbyist, etc. So I think it's important to kind of talk about it because I, I know it weighs on people's hearts and on their minds when they really do fall in love with jujitsu and, and fall in love with the lifestyle. So I mean, for me at White Belt, I had that idea that was like, okay, so this is the the linear trajectory of a jiu-jitsu athlete is like you train as much as you can, you compete as much as you can, eventually you get to black belt, you win black belt tournaments, and then you open a gym. And that's how, especially as a woman, you will be legitimized inside of the jiu-jitsu space and inside of the jiu-jitsu world. And so I set on track to do that. And I think everybody has different ways of doing it. I got a message the other day from a guy who said, like, and I quote, I only work three days a week so that I can train maximum amount of time and, and get my training in. And how do I turn this into a career? And I kind of, I, I kind of think people sometimes are a little bit ass backwards on how this actually works. So when I say that I've had jujitsu as a career since I started at White Belt, I mean that I invested all of my time and money into obtaining a skill. It does not mean that I only worked three days a week so that I could train full time. Actually, it's in fact quite the opposite. I would work 12 hour days and just train at night so that I could afford to quit whatever job I had and get inside of my car and my teardrop trailer and drive down to California for six months and train and actually prioritize jujitsu at that time. So it's a it's not just this like drop everything and train jujitsu and find sponsors and it's all going to work out. It's actually more, I think, akin to 
what you would look at to obtain a master's degree. You spend thousands of dollars and countless minutes and, and, and time and sweat and tears and all of that just to eventually have enough skill to then pass that on to people. And when you get to that point, that's kind of the tipping point of profit or of actual money coming in and not just you pouring thousands of dollars out to go to competitions and train and work and et cetera. You know, that, that like, once you get to that level of skill, then you can go and monetize it. But finessing to that point is really important and making sure you have the right priorities is, is really important. So I don't think working three days a week just so that you can train is actually going to get you there faster, if that makes sense. It totally does. I think that when people decide they want to do this as a full-time job, they haven't really thought beyond the competition day. You know, they think, well, if I just go out and win, then that's all I need to do. But the process of building a sustainable and successful business is much greater than just your competition record. Having a great competition record helps a lot, but I think where a lot of people probably do themselves a disservice is they've put so much brain power into how they're going to meddle, but they don't put a lot of brain power into how they can build a sustainable business after they get mm -hmm. that medal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's my whole thing was like, okay, that I win a world championship and then I open a gym. And then because I won the world championship, the gym's just going to open itself. And really that's not how it worked. And I think one of the most important things I did, and I, and I thank myself to this day that I made the decision to do so is Whenever I would come home and I would work, I would work maximum amount of hours and make as much money as I possibly could and train as much as I could alongside of that. And then when I would go to California, I always managed a gym from, you know, once I started going to California regularly, I was getting into Blue Belt and I would manage gym. I managed Alliance Eastlake for a summer. I managed um, Alliance Carlsbad for the next summer and the summer after that. So there was actually quite a bit of experience that I had inside of the gym and managing and seeing like what makes people stay, what makes people leave, what is a decent membership, like amount to pay for a membership. And actually being on the business side of things gave me a much better look at what it would eventually look like to have my own gym. Well, let me dig into this a little bit deeper because I'd love to know as someone who does this full time, how do you pay the bills? How do you monetize? So I think the, the coolest part about what my intention was, was that I was going to like literally up until last year, it was black belt world champion, open a gym. And I'm telling you, like, that was just the track. That was what everybody else does. That was how it's been done before. And I knew I could, you know, follow that, that path. And with the experience of managing different gyms and traveling to so many different gyms and training at different gyms, I eventually just kind of saw this hole in how we sell jujitsu and how we teach jujitsu. And that is coaching. Like what you have is an instructor who owns a gym who may or may not be a world-class champion. And they have, you know, between a hundred and 300 students, if not more, you can't tell me. And I've been to world-class gyms. I've trained at Atos. I've trained at Alliance. I've trained everywhere. And there is not a gym that I've seen a fair ratio of coach to students. There's just not. It's instructor and he has to hold it down for 40 plus people on the mat. And there's so much slipping through the cracks at that point. Yeah, I actually recall the first gym I ever trained at. Very much it was a situation like that where 
the instructor to student ratio was not good. I mean, there there were some days where it I mean, it seemed like there were 50 people on the mats and one instructor who honestly didn't really even seem to care that much about what was happening. I remember like the way that they did their promotions was it was purely attendance based. And I think it was because the instructor simply did not have the bandwidth or the interest to monitor every single student to see if they actually deserve to get that promotion. So I remember one time I got an extra stripe on my blue belt due to a clerical error. <laughs> there was a, a problem where I got my promotion and then for some reason something goofed up in the attendance system and it said I was due for another one and the instructor was paying so little attention I just got another promotion which was I mean at the time it felt awesome but yeah. it's, it's it's one of those funny things where I think that it illustrates the point you're trying to make here which is that we often have classes where there's one instructor and just dog piles of students and yeah that only works if what you're expecting out of the instructor is a one-way conversation, right? Like if professor comes in and they show a technique and there's no questions and answers, there's no detailed review, just it's like one technique and then done, two techniques and then done, three techniques and then done. But that's not really a great way to learn. I mean, if that's all your instructor is doing, you're not actually getting much more out of instruction than you would if you just bought a DVD. So mm -hmm. I agree with you that we as as instructors and as coaches need to do a better job of keeping that ratio a little bit more even so that we can actually be attentive to helping our students get better on an individual basis. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so the, the coach to student ratio definitely has to be upped. But when we look at what the real problem is, is, I mean, there's a difference between like a competitive gym and the normal people gym. And I think what we like to think is like, okay, everybody in this com competition gym is here to compete and we're really going to train hard. But then you're just having competitors all over top of each other <laughs> trying to win every single round. And also the instructor is trying to win every single round because we're all getting ready for a competition. And I've just, mm -hmm. I've noticed in my travels and in my experiences that that kind of fosters a really dog eat dog energy where we're not really actually sharing information and helping people grow through multiple facets of communication. We're helping people grow through the hammer and nail situation, which is the point that jujitsu can make is that you can still progress regardless of getting your ass kicked on a regular basis, which is phenomenal and it's great discovery. But I do think that it's quite archaic, even in some of the best of the of gyms. I mean, you're listening to this guy, you're basically watching, like you said, a live instructional and he can't get around to everybody. And for the most part, even in competition gyms, there are population truths where 70% of the people who are inside of that gym aren't actually full-time competitors. And you're using these bodies of your accountant, lawyer, doctor, nurse to get yourself ready for these competitions. And they kind of get the shit end of the stick because not only are they not, you know, this isn't their career, but they're also getting kind of the hard side where you don't have a coach, you don't get the praise of being a competitor and you're just this, you know, body in the gym that's that's taking quite a beating. So which is usually unfortunate because those are usually like 50, 60 year old moms and dads who yeah. are way past their athletic prime. And then all of these wrestlers are coming in and power doubling them and slamming them onto the floor. Yeah, whatever way you want to make it. It's just the vast majority of people who are inside of gyms, whether they're comp competition gyms or not, are people who are not going to compete at a world class level. So. I think we kind of have this narrative in jiu-jitsu that if you compete, you're all of a sudden world-class level. Or if you go to worlds, you're world-class level. It's like, it's, it's hard to 
to deal, I think as someone who, of course, because I didn't have a family, didn't have kids and I could go out all out for it, I was able to do that. But I do understand and see the side of things where people just aren't getting coached and they're not, it's not really conducive. And I think when we say, oh, there's a, you know, a 99% chance that you're not going to even make it past your first year in jiu-jitsu or however, whatever they say about like of the 10,000 people that try jiu-jitsu, 1% are going to get their black belts or whatever way you want to put it. I'm like, can we improve that retention percentage? Mm-hmm. Like, can we actually make it better for people and feel better for people to do jujitsu and not in a way of like actually coddling people and telling people they're doing good when they're not, but just giving them more information. And that's really what started my career getting paid for jujitsu. The first time I got paid for jujitsu, I almost fainted. I will tell you like right now, I was just like, oh my God, I had no mm-hmm. idea, especially because it started at Purple Belt. One of my friends who was a white belt that trained at Atos was a fitness trainer online. And she was like, I think you could do this with jujitsu. Like, there's just no reason why there's nobody doing it. And I think you could do it. Like, why not? You have a following, you have people that ask you for advice and and they, they, you know, ask you questions and stuff. Like, I I really think that you could do this. And I was kind of like, "Mm, no, like people want to be coached in person. Like that's kind of the model of jujitsu is you do, you go to class and she was like, well, I'll just give you this information, go over it. If you think it'll work great. If you don't find whatever. And I sat on that information and that business model for about five months. And then in January of 2020, I was at the tail end of my purple belt getting ready for Pan Ams. I was working in an engineering firm that I was kind of like lying to them, telling them like, oh yeah, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. And <laughs> I knew that come March 14th, I would quit my job and go to California. And then, you know, that year I'd also planned to go to Lucas LaFreeze for three months prior to Worlds. And I knew that this was the first time going into the States that I didn't have something set up for cash under the table or for manning a gym or something like that. I was just going to go to Lucas's and train and hopefully save enough money at that point to carry myself through those couple months. And financially it wasn't looking very good. And I was really stressed out. I had, you know, at that point been five years into it and really just gave everything, gave my all. I lived in a van for two years. And before that I lived in a teardrop trailer in the parking lot of the gym, you know, like it was not glamorous and I needed something that I could take with me and that I didn't have to worry about quitting my job every six months or every three months or finding something to do under the table. And I looked over her material and I was just like, okay, I think I could, I could make a course about jujitsu that is more than instructional. So it has mindset stuff backed up with it. It has, you know, personalized feedback. And that's really what people are craving with jujitsu is like, if you tell someone like, Hey, you could do this, this, and this after a role, they're like, really? Like, and then what, and then what, and then what? And that's really what the business is, is, is feedback structure and accountability that, doesn't necessarily happen in a regular class. So I started that and I just mentioned it on my story at the time. I think I had like 4,500 followers who had been there for quite a while watching me gallivant all over the world doing this stuff. And I just said like, hey guys, you can pay me to be obsessed with your jujitsu. You're going to send me video footage. I'm going to give you specific feedback. I'll give you exercises, you know, reading assignments, watching assignments, etc. And here's the application. And I had, I think, 36 people apply that night. And I almost like, I almost fainted. Like, it was just like, what? Like, this is like, I put it out there. I didn't have to open a gym. I didn't have to become a black belt and I didn't have to get a world champion 
like a, a title to to do this all i had to do was show and these people that applied had been watching me for years or months or weeks but they knew you can tell by going to my page that it's what i'm about it's what i'm doing it's what i'm prioritizing and i didn't want to make it about only athletes i wanted it to make to be about those people who are bodies for the athletes so that they're getting something too i love what you're talking about here in terms of alternate pathways because there is this prevailing concept of what a jiu-jitsu career looks like and it very much centers around go win a bunch of medals and open a gym and there's almost a degree of hostility to anything that goes beyond that and i find that also we're very very we're very much symbol worshipers in this community we worship the black belt we worship gold medals and sometimes people act like unless you fall into that stereotype it's like it's not even worth listening to you and that's such a weird thing because you don't see that in many other careers but jujitsu has this very close-minded lens through which what how we think we should be able to make careers out of this and who should be able to do it and i think a lot of that is being challenged i mean i remember when i started training jujitsu this was when the Gracie University, the online school thing was starting to be put together and people were making fun of it left and right because they were saying, you can't learn jujitsu online. This is fraudulent or whatever. And I remember at one point, this was I was a brown belt at the time. I went to on a travel trip to a place where the only gym there was a Gracie garage. And they had learned jujitsu from being part of the online Gracie University. They had no full-time coach. It was just a bunch of people who got together in their gym. They signed up for this thing and they started training. And I was a brown belt. And I remember one of their guys triangled me and I like, my mind was blown. I thought, okay, uh, uh-huh. I guess you actually can learn things remotely. And if there's one thing we've learned in the last year, it is that we mm-hmm. are surprisingly adept more so than we thought at getting things done remotely. And yes, there is definitely benefit to being there in person and feeling the push and pull resistance with someone. That is obviously the best way to learn. But if your instructor is not being attentive to you, it doesn't matter whether you're in person or not, right? I mean, if you are sparring with a world champion black belt and they're not giving you any feedback and they don't care about your performance, you you know, your ability to get value out of that experience is much limited. Whereas if you're sparring with someone or even just speaking with someone who legitimately cares about your progress, mm-hmm. you're going to get a lot more out of it. The best instructor I ever had was a purple belt at the time, and I had access to brown and black belt instructors, but the purple belt was much more attentive and much more interested in helping me solve real problems. So it's really it was a breakthrough for me to realize that coaching is not about finding the guru on the mountaintop who knows everything. It's about mm-hmm. finding someone who is legitimately invested in your success and holds you accountable to that success and to succeed. And it sounds like you figured out a pretty good model too. If I if I understand, you do this a lot of it online, right? You're not a gym owner. You do this for people all over the world. Yeah. So for the last since January 2019, I've been fully doing this full time and have had my bills paid fully by coaching people online. I've had I think 140 students come through. They do a 12-part course with me. It can take them six months. It could take them a year to do. But I essentially, the the crazy part about starting this business in 2020 was that 
it was 2020 and <laughs> my major insecurity was like, oh, people are going to think that I'm crazy. I was the first part. Like, I, I think Margot Cesarelli had had some courses that she would teach, but I was the first person coming out and saying like, I will do one-on-one -on -one coaching with you through the internet. And people are like, what? <laughs> like, how are you going to do one-on-one -on -one coaching jujitsu through the internet? And I think like, Basically, the, to use one of your examples, sparring with a black belt world champion and not being able to get a, a ton of value out of that six or eight minute round when you're the one getting, you know, wrapped up, film that and send it to me and we will watch it and break it down. And that's really like the second layer or the fly on the wall that I am when it comes to my students. I'm just helping assist what they're already going through. Like you're already what's required in jujitsu is that you go to class. That's already going to happen. If you're going to go make progress with jujitsu, you have to go to class. But what my action or what my, what my role is, is to be that fly on the wall for you and to be watching you and overseeing this. And almost it's easier to be removed because then I don't have any personal relationships with people that you're rolling with or any thoughts or ideas about them. It's just about you. And when I started, I was just like, oh my God, people are going to think I'm crazy. And then 20 March hit. And I was like, Oh my God, this is the best thing that could happen for my business. And <laughs> it was a, a bit of a pivot because I did require you to initially in the early months, I did require you to send in video footage because I needed to have some idea of who you were and how you rolled and what you were like. And then everybody wasn't able to train. And I was like, okay, this is either going to sink or swim right now. And I was locked up in an Airbnb in Charlotte, supposed to be training for worlds. And I started putting together visual courses. So my initial course was going through six different guards. I would find the major players of those guards. I would have my students review those matches and I wanted them to score keep because I wanted them to, I remember very early on in, in white and blue belt, like I think it was the very end of blue belt where I finally understood what a sweep was. And it shouldn't take four years to figure that out. It shouldn't take three years. It shouldn't take two years. It should take a conversation to figure out what a sweep is. And that's just like how I, I like to think that I'm a physical learner, but I'm a slow learner. Like when it comes to technicalities and rhetoric, I mean, I dropped out of, out of school for psychology and went into jujitsu because it was a much more real and physical realm. And then I found myself having to go back into that actual study and structure of courses and of education and having that background really helped when I started putting these courses together. And it, I did see people go from not understanding what a takedown was or how to score a takedown or what the contingencies were to being experts at it within, you know, a few weeks. So I was just like, okay, I'm doing something right here. They're learning something and they're actually able to make sense of what they're seeing, which I think is one of the hardest things in jiu-jitsu when you start is to watch two people roll and understand who's actually in control or what's going on, what is even the position named. And I, I capitalized on that. And for that entire summer, I just built a bunch of different courses to kind of cater to that type of learning. Yeah, it's a story that resonates with me as well, because we had a similar path when we decided that we wanted to do this podcast and turn it into a real deal. We launched a premium platform and we're kind of similar to you where we offer a lot of remote coaching services. I, at the beginning, didn't know how that was going to go because my experience had always been coaching people in person when it came to this martial art. 
And the way that you do that is you watch two people spar and then you just kind of bark out commands here and there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And maybe if you're feeling particularly salty, then you'll spend a few minutes talking to them after the role. So I assumed that doing things remotely would be inferior. But what I've actually found is that if you have the luxury of tape review, you can provide much better feedback for people Mm -hmm. because you can actually break things down to like the micro minute. If you're an instructor and you're on the spot watching people spar and you're trying to pick out key details and you can't stop things and explain, you're kind of limited in terms of the feedback that you can provide, right? I mean, if I'm watching two people spar, if I say anything more in depth than get your hand out of there or posture up, right? I just don't have the time to do it because the round is still going. So I can't provide you really detailed feedback if it's a live role, but if it's video, if I've got something meaningful to say, I can pause the video and spend 10 minutes explaining the concept if I think it's important. And I have found that those kinds of video detailed breakdowns are way more valuable than actual in-person coaching experience because of that one attribute. And in fact, the feedback that we've gotten now is that people love that service that we provide on BJJ Mental Models Premium because we can provide that kind of feedback. And like you mentioned, it's nice to get feedback from different people. If you're only ever getting feedback from your instructor, then you've got someone who's got their own game plan, their own set of biases, um, their own vision of what jujitsu is, and they're going to intentionally or unintentionally cookie cutter that onto you. Whereas if you open up to people all around the world, then you get a much wider, diverse set of opinions and views. And it used to be that in order to do that, you had to, like you said, hop in a van and globetrot. But Mm -hmm. now with the tools we've got and the people providing these services, you can quite easily find someone online who for a very reasonable fee will review that footage of yours. So that's something that, I mean, I definitely recommend everyone give it a try. Like I was myself of the mindset that like, oh, I can't imagine this being better than in-person instruction. But now I actually sort of feel like the ability to break down footage is so valuable that a good instructor should consider doing that even for people that they train with in person. I'm not back on the mats yet after this pandemic, but when I am, my plan is to start recording footage around the gym and break it down afterwards so that I can actually be better in terms of the way I serve the students. Oh, for sure. For sure. I think that's um, video footage really helps. And what was really funny about not being able to get that video footage for the people who had already paid me to coach them for months in advance, I was kind of like, okay, what, what can I do that would actually fill that gap? And what I found was, especially with like white and blue belts, when I showed them professional matches, I didn't have to correct them. I was like, this is how you do it right. This is how you, this is what's wrong with this. And you can point out what's really great about jujitsu is one of the first matches I have my students watch is Rafael Lovato versus Hodger Gracie. It's a four minute match. There's four moves. They're both black belts at the highest level. And I get to show people, I get to show white belts, look, Lovato makes a mistake here and pays for it here, here, and here. He gets, he just gets mount choked in that match. And you're like, it, it, there's no difference. An armbar is an armbar at black belt. You know, it's the same as it is at white belt, as it is all along the belts. And as time goes on, an armbar is an armbar, a choke is a choke, a throw is a throw. doesn't matter what level you are. And I think it gave people confidence and hope to be like, okay, first of all, it's okay to make mistakes because that's just the nature of it. Even at the highest level, it's a game of mistakes, of capitalizing on someone's mistakes. And then also it's simple to the point where you can win using four simple moves. You know, it was a foot sweep, a stack pass, 
side control to mount and then a mount choke. So it kind of was instead of going and saying personally about their game, which at white and blue belt really isn't quite developed and they're making so many mistakes that to give them specific video footage critiques is helpful, but to condense a lesson on half guard, watch Hodger Gracie against three different opponents and repeatedly see the same things done right and show people that and have that be imprinted into their memory, their visual memory. And that type of, of learning helped me even as I was explaining it, like it improved my jujitsu. And I was like, okay, so this is, this is going to be okay until we can start training again. This is actually a really powerful tool. Yeah. Something you touched on there is how much it actually helps you to provide this footage in terms of your own growth. And that's something that I also didn't expect, which is that by doing more instruction, it would make me better at jujitsu as well, because the act of having to explain something makes you kind of really crystallize the concepts in your own mind. And I found that to be a tremendously helpful way to improve just the act of teaching, making me a better student as well. You also brought up some really good points about just inertia. And this is something that I also feel getting people to get on board and start contributing is often the hardest part. And mm -hmm. when you're asking people to send footage in, there's a variety of reasons why they might be hesitant to do it. One is, like you said, you know, fear of embarrassment, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate because you need that embarrassment in order to get better. But additionally, there's also just inertia, right? If you're asking people to do something that is fundamentally different and unique from the way that they've done things before, mm -hmm. and they have to do work to make it happen, there's an inertia barrier to overcome. This is something that you see a lot in software development, where when you're designing a product, you have to overcome sort of a degree of inherent laziness in human beings, right? And, mm -hmm. and this is something that I have definitely encountered trying to get people to submit footage, getting people to just get out their phone camera and record something and then send it to me. If they've never done it before, they drag their feet and they're hesitant to do it. And I got to badger them. But once they do it once, it becomes like just a thing that they do all the time. And they love being able to send that footage and get that feedback. So oh. we'll get this a lot with our premium service where people will, they won't submit anything. And then after being told like 10 times, finally, they'll send <laughs> me something. And then suddenly it's like the floodgates are open and I'm getting videos from these people every day to get reviewed. So again, my suggestion to people who are hearing this is if this sounds like a novel way to teach it, maybe it is, but you should oh. definitely try it. I mean, just next time you're rolling, pull out your phone record a quick clip and send it to someone that you trust for feedback and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And I think what you'll probably find is it becomes a pretty useful tool for your personal development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I found that even I wasn't sending, I, I started recording a lot of my roles at purple belt before I started doing the coaching and especially getting ready for Pan Am's. I was like, Hey, can you record this? Can you record this? And I wasn't recording it to send to anybody that service. I didn't know about your service and that it was just not something that, people were doing at the time, but I would post it on my Instagram. And that was kind of like pretty taboo because people don't just post rolling footage on Instagram, especially competitors. Like you're not, that's a, for some reason is a no, no. And I think when I started doing that, I started getting feedback from people in inside of the space of Instagram, but I also started getting questions like, Hey, how do you do that? Like, what are you doing when this happens, et cetera, et cetera. And even more so than having someone watch it, watching it myself and being like, Oh, 
I see, like, I can now see myself doing things and I can see the patterns that I'm making and I'm more aware of it. And watching it myself was beneficial. So having someone who not only are you getting over this thing where you have to record it and you have to get over the embarrassment of thinking that you're, I think it's like this, like, resistance to recording because like you don't want to seem like the asshole who's like involved with themselves in jujitsu but really like what other art do you see artists doing where they don't look at their work it's just absolutely like if you imagine blindfolding yourself while you were doing a painting and then never looking at that painting again and going on to the next painting thinking that you are going to improve yeah it's a really good analogy and it's something that I understand why people don't want to send in footage or share videos or record themselves because fundamentally you're probably recording a video of you getting your ass kicked, which I can understand Mm -hmm. not wanting to post that up on Instagram, right? I can understand that the ego gets tied up in that very heavily, but that is what's preventing you from growing really, right? If you're embarrassed to post those videos that people can critique then Mm -hmm. you deny yourselves the opportunity for really, really awesome and valuable feedback on how you could get better. When I see things on Instagram, for example, and honestly, I've unfollowed most of these channels because I find it so obnoxious. Very few people post footage of themselves being vulnerable or just having regular rolling or sparring or posting matches where they lost. Normally people post 10 second style clips where they do Mm -hmm. like a, you know, some flying back take shit that would never, ever work in practice. And you know that these guys did about a hundred takes to try to get a clip where they actually could pull it off. And that's the one that they post. So you're not putting anything of value into the world when you do that. It looks cool, but it's not Mm -hmm. useful. It's not good jujitsu a lot of the time because it would be very low percentage and high risk. It doesn't open you up for feedback on in terms of things you could improve. So if you want to look cool, then yeah, you can post that style footage. But honestly, one of the best feedback tools that you can have is to put honest, raw footage up into the ether and just see what people say about it. So I do encourage people to think about doing this if they haven't done it before. Yeah, I think it definitely opens you up. It makes it a little bit more vulnerable, but there's absolutely nothing. There's no downside to it, you know, like with the exception of having your ego maybe a little bit hurt or maybe feeling like you're not putting out your best work. There's just, especially with Instagram, like you'll even see people. And I always kind of like, I've grown up as an artist. So I follow a bunch of painters and a bunch of artists of of different facets. And I always see them showing the process of the work. And that's super important to me. I don't ever want to have women come to my Instagram and be like, Oh my God, she magically sprouted out as a brown belt one day and there was absolutely no failure and there was absolutely no process and there was absolutely no tears. I don't want people to think that like, it's really important to me that we show the true, the true progression of becoming skilled at jujitsu and becoming an artist in jujitsu. It's, it's definitely got lows and it more than likely is going to have more lows than highs when you look at your overall career or the first 10 years of your career for sure. That's just going to be the truth of it. And I think that was one of the things that helped people trust me when it came to a time where I said, hey, you know, like, let's let's do coaching. Like, I want to do it because they had seen me be vulnerable before. They had seen me put out stuff that, you know, I see me they see me get side smashed and then show up to training the next day. And that's actually more important than showing the highlight reels and showing techniques. Definitely. On the topic of objections that people might have, I would like to know, 
How do you overcome just some of the common objections that people might come up with when you try to pitch your services? You know, for people who want to do something similar, there's going to be a variety of objections that people put up. Like, you know, you're not a world champion or I already have a jujitsu coach or I already spend enough money on jujitsu. I mean, surely you've had to deal with these. I know I've had to receive these objections too, as we launch our services. I'd love to know how you break through those barriers so that people are open-minded and willing to work with you. I think that once I explain what the program is entailed, I've never had a person shut it down or not invest because they didn't think it would be worth it. I've only ever had people say no because of their financial situation and whether their financial situation is actually like inhibiting them or not, their mindset about it is. And I'm not interested in working with someone who's not going to invest. So for me, it's just, it's just kind of cut and dry at that point. Like if you don't see the value in my service, I don't want you to spend your money. You know, I really just don't want it. I would rather go to someone who sees it and is like, oh my God, yes, this is really going to help me. I'm going to spend the money and it's going to help. That's really the the biggest objection I have. And and I price my my course like I would price in-person privates. It's, it's actually even more valuable because you have information that you will have for the rest of your jiu-jitsu career. You will always have, you know, the the information I give you. You know, it's never going to go away. So it's not like that private that you do and you forget and you don't write it down and then it's over and you spent a hundred bucks. It's sequential and it's actually an entire course. So as far as objection goes, if you can't afford it, then you can't afford it. And I'm not going to, to cry about it. But what I do want people to ask themselves and understand is like, well, what, what did you think it was going to be? Like you thought I was just like going to offer you this service for nothing or for less than in person. And that kind of gives me an idea of their mindset about what's possible with training. That's a really interesting point. I mean, this is a common problem and a trap that's very hard to resist when you're getting your feet off the ground and starting a new enterprise, which is charging what you're worth. Mm -hmm. I have definitely found this as well. I mean, the predominant value that we put out into the space is a free podcast, right? I mean, a good percentage of those people convert to become paid subscribers, but the majority are always going to be just, they listen to the thing for free and they don't give us any money. And it can be a trap to focus on trying to please those people who take things for free because the feeling is, well, maybe if I give them enough value, they'll convert. And to some extent that's true, right? If you demonstrate your value to people some of them will convert and they will be willing to reward you for those services. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lot of people who simply will never pay you money. Mm -hmm. Or if they do, if you're able to convince them to, it's going to be such a battle that you're going to have to fight tooth and claw and wind up wishing you hadn't even done it because you wind up like the cost of your time is much greater than any profit you'd make off of the deal. This is a challenge that you see all over the world where people sometimes underprice themselves to be competitive and they actually wind up creating things that are not sustainable. And I do see this in jujitsu. You know, people sometimes balk at the price of black belt privates, but like, dude, I mean, you've got to respect the value of people's time. If you think that you're going to be paying someone minimum wage for a black belt private, you're deluding yourself. And that's something that I've actually found interesting, the psychology of how we pitch our premium services. I mean, I always assumed that if we made them optional and donation based and cheap, 
that we would collect more people and we'd be better off. Like if we said, hey, just give us a few bucks and it's optional that we'd be better off. But what I actually found is the psychology of higher paying users who pay the full premium is totally different from the people who are only willing to put in a dollar or two in terms of their expectations and also in terms of their commitment. And that's the thing, too. Right. There's a great quote that I heard from Russell Brunson, which is that people who pay pay attention. (laughs) And that's true, right? If someone has invested their own money into your services, they are much more motivated to get the value out of those services. Whereas if you start trying to give things away for free or even at a really, really low price, the thing that you often find is that those people, because there's nothing to lose, they just, they don't give a shit, right? I mean, if you offer, for example, a, a service that is like free and it's free to sign up, then yeah, you might attract a lot of people who sign up, but they just, they're not motivated to get anything out of it. So they forget about it. Whereas if you ask people to front some money down up front, even if it's just a little bit, at least that commitment shows that they're not wasting your time as well. And as a business owner, you've always got to be mindful of that, right? It's not just about getting business at any cost. You need to get business that puts food on your table as well. And I I think that that's something that in jujitsu, we see people sometimes they either don't understand the value of these services or they undervalue them. I mean, mm-hmm. people often say, why is jujitsu so expensive? Well, look, if you were paying your gym, your jujitsu gym, like the same kind of membership fees that you paid, a, like, a, you know, like a gold's gym or even less, if you were your instructor would be homeless. It's just mm-hmm. not sustainable to pay the kinds of low wages that people would want to pay. So I think that at some point you need to be firm about the prices that you're willing to set. And if people are just adamant, they won't pay those prices. Well, then that's maybe evidence that maybe those are not your target audience and you need to focus on people who will. Yeah, I have, I just have absolutely no, no interest in trying to convince someone to do something that'll be good for them. It's just my Instagram says enough. Like that's kind of where I see my free content and my valuable content coming in is like, it's free. I have almost 11,000 people watching me. My, my followership has doubled since I started doing coaching. So I know that I'm providing value and I know that people are there to watch me, whether or not they want to be coached by me is another thing. If you go through my entire application form and we get onto our discovery call and you know, you've said, Oh, I want to accomplish this, this, and this, I, I need a coach for this, this, and this reason. And then we get on the call and I answer all of your questions and I, and you're super excited about the product and you're really excited about working with me and then we get down to the brass tacks and you're not excited anymore, then it's just not worth the fight. Like it's like mm-hmm. at that point, I'm just like, okay, you know, like absolutely no problem. The way I see it is like you're paying for 12 privates up front. And if you would pay for that inside of your gym and you would you should be able to pay for that as a provable product. You know, I have plenty of, of people reviewing it. I have ton, plenty of people inside of the course that can vouch for it. And I'm not going to try to convince you to that progress is in investing, because if you don't believe that investing is a part of progress, you are going to have very slow progress. And I'm not like you come to me when after you've learned that lesson, you know, and that's really what I scream about on my Instagram is like, you have to invest, you have to invest in yourself, you have to invest in your gym, you have to invest in whatever you're trying to get something out of you're not it's nothing comes for free. And that's something I I lived by for the last six years is like jujitsu. I never thought for one second that jujitsu was going to pay me before black belt. And that's how I acted. I acted according to that. You know, I knew that it was going to be 10 years of investment before I got a, a penny back. And luckily I have a skill set and an education and the tools and resources 
to build something prior to Black Belt. And I think it's possible for other people as well, but it's going to take a lot of investment. And sometimes that investment means money and sometimes it means time and sometimes it means quitting this so you can pick up that. So something I'd like to dig into a little bit deeper is people's weird obsession with credentials in jujitsu, especially things like the black belt. Now, a lot of people open gyms before they get their black belts. A lot of people open gyms without being like an elite level competitor. But for some reason, people seem to want these things. And that's kind of dumb, because if you think about it, the black belt is a totally arbitrary designation. I'd like to get your thoughts on these symbols and how you overcome the need for those when you're starting a jujitsu enterprise. Hmm. Yeah, I think I still <laughs> something that's kind of funny about it is I still want to get a black belt before I open a gym. And I, I don't know, like, I think for me, it's personal. Like, there's something really sacred and really cool about someone thinking that you're good enough for that label. And I really do trust my professor. I think if I didn't have that trust, it would be different. It would be a different story. I probably would have opened a gym by now just because I do know enough. And I think at purple belt, brown belt, brown, black belt, you do know enough to teach jujitsu. That being said, I think, especially because we don't have a particular rhetoric that explains what a black belt is, or there's no like, you know, degree that you get, like where there's a consensus of everybody agrees that this is what you have to have in order to be that. I think it's, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's kind of arbitrary to say, I need to have my black belt before opening a gym, or I need a, a world championship medal before opening a gym. And what I'm realizing now is people care less and less and less about that. And I, I honestly attribute that to media being what it is and kind of putting those people on pedestals and saying like, this is who I learned it from. And this is who I got my black belt from. I've seen plenty of people who'd never have gone to a competition that can mop the mats with competitors. So it's all jumbled. There's no like exact blueprint of what it should be or why it is the way it is or why we are obsessed with it. Other than personally, I can speak from my own sense of, of self that I know that I, black belt, I will have gone through so many iterations of, of my jujitsu self that, you know, it, it'll be like this, I don't know, like the moment that you get your sword, you know what I mean? And you get, you get to have like that custom sword that made, that's made for you. I, I think it's much more personal than people make it out to be. And then, then the community makes it out to be for me anyways. Well, it is definitely something that is an achievement, and I agree with you that it is a completely personal thing. That's why I find it so interesting that a lot of the time people insist on, you know, black belts for marketing purposes. They will want to pay someone who is a black belt, and if you tell them that they're going to be working with like a brown or a purple belt, they get disenchanted by the whole thing that I don't really get. I mean, I understand that you see the black belt and there's an appeal to it, but there's also a curse of knowledge just because someone has a black belt doesn't mean they're a good instructor. And if they have not learned how to teach, then having a black belt can actually work against them because they're so experienced that they've lost touch with what it's like to be someone who's less experienced. Mm -hmm. So it is not always the case that a black belt is going to be a better instructor. So that's something that I think people get kind of caught up in. Like the the black belt 
is a totally arbitrary thing. And it is not evidence that a person is a quality instructor. It is not evidence that they're going to put you on a journey of personal development. It's just a decision that their instructor made about them. Them, so yes. It's yeah. interesting seeing how it's interpreted from a marketing perspective when we talk about jujitsu businesses. Yeah, I think that's something that I've kind of broke the boundary on personally. And maybe, I don't know if it's easier for women to do that, but I think for me, it was just, it's more about like time spent. I would just want to spend more time traveling and more time training before actually locking myself into a particular city and a place. And I know that that's probably about two years away, which is also probably around where my black belt is, is about two years away. So they're kind of going to line up together when I'm ready to settle. I'll probably have that level. But like you said, it's very personal. It's about like what my instructor thinks about me. And luckily I have a very respectful and healthy relationship with my instructor. And I can't say that for everybody. I know that that's not true. I know that people can get to black belt without ever feeling like their coach personally cared about their journey. So as far as marketing goes, I mean, it's, it's probably just eye candy at that point where it's like, okay, yeah, they're a black belt, you know, that they, they, we can sponsor them. But what's crazy about my particular experience is that I had more sponsors as a blue belt. I don't know why. Like I, I had a, a new Oz sponsor. They paid for every single one of my tournaments. And now I, I'm not even, first of all, just not looking for sponsors because I really don't want to carry the burden of another person's brand, but it's, I'm making money for myself using my own skills. So I don't even want when it comes to marketing and sponsorships and all that kind of stuff, I just want it to be like you buy into me because it's me, not because it's anything else. And that's really my, my only concern when it comes to outside looking in is like, if you resonate, if you like what I'm doing, then stay. If you don't, I have no problem with you not being here. I can have three people in my room or 300. I just want you to be on board. So, on the topic of getting started being a coach, something that you had brought up at the beginning of this episode was people coming to you and basically saying, okay, I've made the decision that I want to make jujitsu my life. I want to do this full time. What do you think is required to be in that state? Because one of the things about jujitsu is there is this degree of irrational exuberance that a lot of new people have <laughs> is, you know, as soon as they start taking it, assuming they don't get filtered out within the first month. They sort of decide mm -hmm. that jujitsu is now their everything. It's actually very strange. I don't see this in many other situations in life, but people, when they go into jujitsu, becomes identity consuming. And a lot of the time that kind of wears off as they get older and more wise and mature. But there is that period of initial exuberance where people say, I want to do this for the rest of my life. How do you know? when you have that mindset, how do you know that this isn't just infatuation? Like, how do you know that you feel this way and this is still the way that you're going to feel for the rest of your life and you should quit your job and you should go off and do your own thing? Is it really the right decision for you or is it just a, a phase? Yeah, I think it has to start with little pieces. Like if for me as a white belt, I was like, okay, I'm in school for psychology. I should probably finish that. It's a paying career, but also this is real psychology. Like this is like real life psychology that I get to practice on a regular basis. And that's where my obsession started. I was like, okay, then how do I make this like a career? And, and how do I, and I was in that exact same mental space of like, okay, how do I make this my life? And it started with class attendance. And if I was going to give 
if, if you came to me and you were like, genuinely, I'm a white belt. I really want to make this my life. I wouldn't tell you like, Hey, maybe in the future, you might not want to have this be your life. I'm like, look, if you're going to, if, if you want to go for it, you got to go for it. But this, this is what you're going to have to sacrifice. And a lot of it is going to be money. You're going to have to figure out a way to both support yourself and learn because like I said, the payback, once you, you start making money back when you are skilled enough and when you have enough experience in the field, it's not before that, unless you're coming in with money to open a gym in collaboration with another person. That's the only other time I've seen people who aren't skilled make money through jiu-jitsu is by if they just have money already and they can help someone else do their dream. I would say to that white belt, I would say, okay, first things first, you have to work hard enough and get your blue belt. The next thing is getting your blue belt. You're not going to teach anybody. Nobody's going to want to learn from you. Nobody's going to listen to you as a white belt. Also keep your mouth shut about being a black belt world champion. Like <laughs> you can say that to yourself and you can work like it. Like that's what your goal is. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see you quit your job and live and in, move into your mom's basement just so you, so you can do jujitsu and get your blue belt. That's, that's not the right way of, of going about it. White belt, you need to get your blue belt at blue belt you need to start helping with kids classes. That's like literally the door, either helping with kids classes or managing the gym or cleaning the gym. And these are, this is what I mean by it's not a glorious path. It is not glamorous. <laughs> it is like starting with what you can take and depending on your situation and depending on your, honestly, I think your gender, I think a lot of girls have more opportunity to kind of get a career started in that sense where for some reason, and I guess for, I, I don't want to say for some reason, but for the reason that you're a woman, you're taken from that blue belt and they're saying like, Hey, can you help with the kids class? Even at white belt, I've seen, I've seen women help with the kids class, but that is honestly like one of the first ways you can do it. Uh, that's how I did it. I started with kids classes and managing the gym. And then every time I had a beginner's class, I was in a really small gym in Canada. And to my professor, my current professor, I would always say like, Hey, can I teach the beginner class and just have you watch? And I'm not getting paid, by the way. This is all just for bu building my experience. And sometimes he would say yes. And that was like my opportunity to practice my, my coaching skills at Bluebell and have my professor who is watching me teach this class critique me from a very, very, not young age, but from a very early level. And that's the first makings of it. And then from there, you're going to earn your purple belt. And I think at purple belt and going into brown is when you can actually start coaching people either in person or online. I think this online thing is going to explode and I am more than willing to teach people how to do what I do. Like if you are a brown belt right now and you want to do online coaching and you have people who you know would want to learn from you, send me a message. There's absolutely no reason why there shouldn't be more of me doing what I'm doing and more of you guys doing what you're doing. But that's how it's going to start. It's going to be very humble and, and very small. Well, on that note, if people do want to reach out to you, if they do want to check out what you do, how do they do it? Beans of Nebula, like just go to my Instagram and send me a message. Tell me that you heard on the podcast or that you know that I do coaching and I will reply to every single person who comes at me with that reason. You know, if you want to learn from me, send me a message on Instagram. That is the best way to get a hold of me. And that's where all of my business is centered out of. 100% of my students are from Instagram. I don't do anything at any other mode, except for when you do become a student, I pull you off of just talking to you on Instagram and you go into my system. But that's, that's the best way. 
Awesome. One of the things I do find interesting about jujitsu businesses is how Instagram centric they are. That's something I've had to get my head around as we built out this thing, which is that jujitsu happens on Instagram, like Facebook. Yes, there are a lot of people on Facebook and a lot of them do jujitsu, but the engagement and the exchange of ideas on Facebook is nowhere near where it is on Instagram. Mm -mm. No, I think that I was on there at the right time and I was always just talking about what I was doing. And that's kind of how I started building, building my audience. And I wanted to talk to people who were like-minded, like who really loved jujitsu and really wanted to make it their life and knew that it was going to be long-term and knew that there was going to be ups and downs. And, and I wanted to just show my work essentially as I go. And now you can go, there's a lot of things that are archived, but now you can go, you know, for, five years into my feed and you can see me at white belt and blue belt and you can see what I was saying. And I'm not trying to, to like hide or, or cover any part of that journey because I know that's what people resonate with and connect with is like that the visual and a lot of times right at what I write, Instagram just happens to be the best application for that. Awesome. Well, if people want to check out our stuff, I think most people know how to do it. Mm-hmm. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's where we've got our database of all of the concepts we talk about here on the show, plus a contact form if you want to shoot me a message, ask me a question, and a link out to everyone else. And of course, we talked extensively about premium stuff on here. If you're interested in that, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com is the place to go. That's the destination for all of our next level stuff like strategy courses. If you want me to review your footage, that's where you'd go to do that. Again, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. Or if you just want to drop us some money to support us, you can do that on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash bjjmentalmodels. So two different ways that you can reach out, support our show and get some value out of it. So Rebecca, Mm -hmm. awesome chat. Thank you so much for dropping by. Really do appreciate it. And I think that you're kind of at the tip of the spear of a cutting new edge of jujitsu coaching. There is this big movement towards a a true coaching process within jujitsu, something that has been traditionally missing. And the pandemic has also opened up a lot of doors in terms of doing this stuff remotely. So I think, again, you are kind of a trailblazer there. And I look forward to seeing what you're up to as your thing keeps on growing and getting bigger. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on and, and talking about this. I think it's really important for for us to just like say like there's another way it's possible we're doing it i'm glad that you guys have that service i think you know if i was a white or blue belt right now and even now just sending video footage to the world is important and part of of growing so that's awesome that you guys offer that in your in your premium service and what really does make me excited about the offshoot of making money with jujitsu and alternative ways is that it's also creating other jobs. I've hired Mm -hmm. three editors. I've hired three content managers, you know, so it's just been like this thing of you might not be in a coaching position, but maybe you'll be in an editing position. Maybe you'll be in a, in a content management position, you know, and looking for those types of new careers that are coming out of jujitsu is really exciting. And I would really love to have eventually like the Silicon Valley style jujitsu center where it's not, we're not concerned about medals. We're actually just concerned about improving people's jujitsu at a, at a decent rate and what's actually possible more so than just showing up to train. Definitely. Well, again, thank you so much for dropping by. And of course, to everyone who spends the time listening to us here every week, thank you as well for the time and attention. And we'll talk to you guys next week.